Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Our goal here has been to provide health information so our listeners can be proactive in improving their health. Also, we hope to provide questions that they can ask their clinicians and work with their clinicians toward these goals. Oh, we've got a dog in the audience. That's great. Yeah. Sorry about Often, that. No, he's, he's welcome as well. Often, we've mentioned functional medicine to address the underlying causes of the disease process. So today, we have an expert, Chris Kresser. Uh, He's an expert in functional medicine. He's an expert at understanding various diseases. He's been informing the public and teaching practitioners and how to work in this art. So very honored to have him. little background. He is the CEO of Kresser Institute, the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine, He's also the creator of ChrisCresser.com, and he's got a blog and information that is very useful. He's a New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Cure. He was also named one of the top 100 most influential people in health and fitness on ByTheGreatest.com, and his blog is one of the top-rated natural health websites in the world. He has a new book out called Unconventional Medicine. Join the revolution to reinvent healthcare, reverse chronic disease, and create a practice you love. So, to help with our new medicine and our healthcare, welcome, Chris. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So, what is wrong with the healthcare we have now? Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot of things that are right about it. It's, it's really incredible at dealing with acute problems like infection and trauma and emergency. You know, if I get hit by a bus, I definitely want to be taken to the hospital. Um, but the, the issue is that acute problems, you know, while we still do experience them, are not the biggest challenge that we face at this point. Um, seven of ten deaths are caused by chronic disease. And 86% of the healthcare dollars that we spend go toward treating chronic disease. And our healthcare system um, not only has failed to address chronic disease, it, I, I would argue that um, it, there's no hope of it addressing chronic disease in its current form. Don't we spend about $3.2 trillion per year on healthcare? That's 18% of our gross national product. That's true, and it's $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in, in this country. And, you know, with that kind of expenditure, we should be preventing and reversing disease. We should have, um, you know, exceptional care, but that's actually not the case. If you look at all of the other industrialized countries, in fact, there have been studies done um, on 11 other industrialized countries like uh, France and Sweden and, and the U.K., And they found that uh, despite spending far more than any of these other countries, the U.S. actually ranks last in many measures of performance and safety and efficacy. 
And another study uh, that was recently done in the British Medical Journal in 2016 found that medical care is the third leading cause of death in, in the United States. Um, so, like I said, I think there's some, some things the conventional medical care system does very well, but the biggest issue we're facing now is chronic disease. It, it's growing at a scary pace. We, we have now one in two Americans that have a chronic disease, and one in four have multiple chronic diseases. Almost 30% of kids now has a chronic disease, and that's up from just 13% in 1994. So that's a profound and, and disturbing trend in just the last 25 years alone. And today is the first generation of kids, in fact, that's expected to live shorter lifespans than their parents. <clears throat> and you know, as a parent myself, that's perhaps the most heartbreaking statistic that I've come across because in the modern world, lifespan has been continually increasing for as long as we've been measuring it, with the exception of a few um, blips here and there due to pandemics like the Spanish flu. So to think that, you know, my daughter and her friends and that generation might actually be the first generation to live a shorter life than their parents in, the mo in modern history is, is pretty disturbing. That is disturbing. I believe in that study you referred to about healthcare being the third leading cause of death. They also mentioned that, um, you know, uh, medical errors are grossly underreported, so that the it could even rank higher in the number of. That's deaths. right. Uh, five, only five to twenty percent of medic of of what they call iatrogenic events or events due to medical intervention are reported. So, the authors of a previous study done on this topic, uh, Dr. Barbara Starfield, um, which was published in in JAMA Journal of American Medical Association back in 2000, speculated that if all medical events were reported, that medical care would actually be the number one cause of death. So is this to say that healthcare used to make us live long, help us live longer, but we're not healthy, but now we're going to be living shorter and we're still not healthy? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one way to look at it is that there's been a profound change in the healthcare landscape. So back in 1900, which is when our, you know, that's the era in which our medical paradigm evolved, the, the top three causes of death were typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia, all acute infectious diseases. And the other main reasons that people went to a doctor at that time were also acute, like a broken bone or an appendicitis or a gallbladder attack. And the treatment was relatively straightforward. You know, the doctor would set the bone in a cast or remove the appendix or eventually prescribe an antibiotic for the infection. And so it was, you know, one problem, one doctor, one treatment, and that, that was the end of it. Um, and that's the, that's the landscape in which our, our medical paradigm uh, evolved. But today, it's, com it's a completely different landscape. As I said before, seven of ten deaths are caused by chronic rather than acute disease. And, and unlike acute conditions, chronic diseases are complex, they're difficult to manage, and they usually, usually last for a lifetime. So this model or method of, you know, of one doctor, one treatment, um, uh, you know, uh, one problem doesn't really lend itself well to this chronic disease environment where the average patient has multiple problems. They need to see multiple doctors, often a different doctor for every different part of the body, at least in, in the way our system works. And then they will tend to take, you know, be on those treatments for a lifetime. And our system with its very brief appointment times and 
um, you know, lack of support for diet, lifestyle, and behavior change is not really set up for that. For chronic an, interesting, an interesting quote from Robert Lustig's latest, latest book, The Hacking of the American Mind. He says that the current health system uh, prolongs the time of dying, which is an interesting right. way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. I mean, if you look at lifespan um, as on, the only thing that matters, then if somebody ends up spending their last, you know, 15 years of their life in a wheelchair and, you know, uh, incontinent and incapacitated, is that really a victory? <laughs> you know, the, I think most of us, you know, if we had the choice, might prefer um, to live, uh, uh, you know, might not sign up for that um, and, and certainly would prefer to live those remaining 15 years in a healthy state rather than a, a really compromised state. And, in fact, in the paper, um, in, in, in some papers that have looked at this issue, you know, many researchers have made that comment. It's like uh, you, you can't just look at lifespan as the only variable. You have to look at the quality of life. And the truth is, our quality of life is arguably diminishing because people are getting diagnosed with diseases at an earlier and earlier age. Now we have um, kids as young as eight years old, you know, being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So instead of somebody being diagnosed at age 50 and living with that condition for maybe 30 years, they're now being diagnosed at age 8 or 10. And because we have these miraculous technologies that can extend lifespan, that person may now suffer with that, with that condition for another 70, you know, for 70 years. And not only does that have a tremendous individual cost in terms of the decline in quality of life, lost productivity, lost wages, it has a, a, a just a mind-boggling societal cost in terms of the, the burden of um, caring for that person over a lifetime. The average... Uh, it costs about $14,000 a year to care for a patient with type 2 diabetes. So imagine the impact financially on our system of even the, the age of diagnosis shifting 10 years backwards. It would be enormous and overwhelming, and it would, you know, it bank, that just single change alone could bankrupt our, our health care system and our government. In your book, you said that like a third of us, 100 million of us, have prediabetes, and like 88% of us don't even know it. Yeah, it's it's actually 100 million have either either prediabetes or diabetes. 88% of people with prediabetes don't know that they have it. And here's the kicker: uh, it takes only five years on average for someone to progress from prediabetes to diabetes. So, in a pretty short amount of time, certainly within our lifetimes, we could see with if without intervention and treatment. A, a huge increase in the number of diabetics, and as I just said, at the cost of fourteen thousand dollars just for one year to treat a patient with that condition, we we just can't cope with that expense. So, this is a point I try to make in the book that you know, in the recent debate on healthcare ACA versus ACHA, there was a lot of discussion about health insurance, and you know. Um, the importance of, of, of cover, you know, more people being covered with health insurance. And I, um, I agree that that's an important discussion to have, but I think an even more important thing to realize is that health insurance is not the same thing as health care. Health insurance is a method of paying for health care. And 
it doesn't matter what method we use to pay for healthcare, whether it's individuals or government or corporations, employers, there is no method that will adequately be able to pay for the, uh, the treatment of chronic disease if it continues to increase at its current pace. And I think that's the elephant in the room that nobody is talking about. The only chance we have of saving our country financially and saving ourselves from chronic disease is to shift our attention away from managing it after it has already occurred, which is what our, our current focus is, to preventing and reversing it. And, you know, there's a lot of lip service paid in the conventional model to prevention, but the reality is our system is not set up to really support patients in taking the steps that they would need to take in order to prevent disease, number one. And number two, it's not at all set up to investigate the root causes of disease um, and reverse it. You know, it's, it's primarily... A, a, a system that applies band-aids, you know, to, to disease that already exists. So, you know, to use an analogy, if you have a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, the conventional approach would be to give you a diagnosis of foot pain and prescribe a painkiller. And, you know, certainly that would help reduce the pain, but uh, what we really need to do is, is be taking off the shoe and dumping out the rock um, so that that patient doesn't need to take an unnecessary drug for the rest of their life. Those are excellent points. And coming back to diabetes, I've noticed that physicians, you know, if your blood sugar is 100 or you're not diabetes yet, don't worry about it. But it's a continuum, and the risk factors start long before the blood sugar might even get to 84, before the doctor's even aware of it. And what's particularly annoying is you can find out many years ahead of time, look at the, you know, look at the postprandial glucose, look at the yeah. adiponectin. You can look look way ahead of time to know if you're on this pathway, but the doctors don't even seem to be concerned until you hit 126. You've got the t-shirt, the jacket, and you're a member of the club. <laughs> that's exactly so, right. Yeah, that's such a good point. And you, you, you said it, it's a continuum or a spectrum. It's not like something magical happens when you go from 90, 98 to 99 or 99 to 100, like you're fine when it's 98, but then all of a sudden you're pre-diabetic when, when you're 100. It's, it's a progression and, and a spectrum. And the, the, the one of the key insights of functional medicine, and, and, and in fact, it's, it's wasn't, this, this came long before functional medicine and many systems of traditional medicine, um, in, in fact, 2,500 years ago in the Huangdi Neijing, which is a, a, one of the first medical texts ever discovered uh, from China, uh, there was a, a say, there's a saying in that text that said the, the wise physician treats disease before it occurs. Um, and then we have, you know, Ben Franklin's famous saying, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So we've known this for, for a long time, but somehow it's been forgotten in our current medical paradigm. And type 2 diabetes, again, is a great example. Um, it's, it's far, far easier to reverse type 2 di- uh, pre-diabetes than it is to reverse full-fledged type 2 diabetes when there's already been you know, beta cell failure and the patient is insulin dependent. That goes without saying. But you're right, our system is, is not set up to um, intervene at that level. We instead wait until it's almost too late, and then we have these enormous expenditures as a result. 
And what's even more frustrating is, I mean, diabetes, what is it, a four times increased risk of heart disease, double the risk of Alzheimer's. But these risks start probably before your blood sugar even gets above 84 in some cases. I mean, uh, 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 it's frustrating. It is frustrating. And and there is a a small, uh, you know, uh, granted, it's it's a slight increase. Um, when you climb above the mid-80s in blood sugar, but it is an increase, and it does progressively in a linear fashion increase after that, the risk for all kinds of diseases, as you pointed out, not just diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, all, all different kinds of cardiovascular disease. And, and the, the thing is, it, it can actually be quite easily managed and reversed, uh, uh, or simply, maybe not easy in the sense that the changes that are required do you know, do, do require effort. Um, and this is one of the areas where I think our conventional healthcare system fails because they don't support, our system doesn't support the interventions that would have the biggest impact. So um, let's, let's continue with the diabetes example. Right now you go into your doctor, let's say you, you, are, you have diabetic blood sugar or pre-diabetic blood sugar, and they will prescribe a medication, perhaps metformin, and they might give you some vague advice about diet and lifestyle as you're walking out the door. And um, the insurance company will cover the cost of that metformin. So the real cost is not, is, is not transparent to you as, as a patient. You know, that's subsidized by our government. So the government or the insurance company. And so the insurance company is essentially saying this is what we value. You know, we value drugs to manage these symptoms, and that's what we're going to pay for. So we have reimbursement-based medicine, not evidence-based medicine. We have, we have reimbursement-based medicine. But imagine what it would be like if you went into the doctor and the doctor tested and determined that you had pre-diabetic blood sugar and they said, okay, so what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you on a healthier diet and we're going to assign you a health coach who's going to come to your house and do a pantry clean out and teach you how to eat well. And they're going to take you to the grocery store and show you how to buy the food that you need to do. And they're going to give you a meal plan and recipes to get you started. And then you're going to have a check-in with that coach every week. We're also going to subsidize your gym membership so you can start an exercise routine. And we're going to pay for a, you know, six sessions with a trainer at the gym so you know what you're doing and you don't hurt yourself. And that's all covered by your insurance plan. Six months later, that patient will no longer have prediabetes. They will have lost weight. They will feel better. Um, They'll be empowered to, 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 you know, that they are able to take charge of their own health and not just be a passive recipient of medication. And they would have had the support they needed all along the way from the health coach and the trainer and maybe a nurse practitioner at the doctor's office to put this all in practice. That's possible. I mean, people might be shaking their heads and saying, that's, that's ridiculous, we could never pay for that. Uh, we could easily pay for that because if a patient is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at age 40 and has it for another 45 years, that's a cost to the healthcare system of over $500,000 for that single patient. In the scenario I just described where they get the health coach and the trainer um, that would probably be a cost of ten or fifteen thousand dollars up, you know, up front, but it would save, uh, you know, six hundred and fifteen thousand dollars over the lifetime of that patient. So um, there's, 
you know, we, we need to rearrange our priorities and reinvest our dollars in, in areas that will make the biggest impact on preventing and reversing disease instead of applying those dollars to the hopeless endeavor of just managing the disease after it's already occurred. There's no way that we can continue to afford that. As I was formerly an economist, I agree with you, but I see the problem in our society is that it's short-term profit, short-term returns, short-term yeah. gain. You're looking at your budget, and you're just worried about today's, and nobody's looking at the long picture. Well, of course, the other problem is that there are some deeply entrenched um, financial interests that are invested in the, in the status quo and that are not interested in, um, cha- in these changes that we're talking about. I mean, without any kind of value judgments, quite frankly, you know, public uh, pharmaceutical companies or public corporations that are tasked with expanding, you know, growing the profits of their shareholders, and they only make more money when more people buy drugs. So how is it in their interest to shrink the number of people that are taking their medications. It's, it's not at all. And insurance companies, it's a similar phenomenon. They only benefit when the overall healthcare expenditures increase. So, as, you know, proposed changes that would actually shrink healthcare expenditures on a per capita basis are not really um, in their interest either. So one of the, the things, the changes that we need to make is to realign incentives so that doctors um, and patients are incentivized uh, to make the right choices for the right reasons. Right now, we don't have that. We have a misalignment of incentives where doctors are rewarded for seeing a higher volume of patients in a shorter period of time, and they're rewarded for ordering more procedures um, that's how they're remunerated financially, and I'm not blaming individual doctors here because most doctors that I've met have, you know, went into medicine for the right reason. Um, it's a systematic, it's it's a systemic problem, and we need to address it on all of these different levels. Re- you know, creating new payment models, realigning incentives, addressing conflicts of interest in medical research, since you know two thirds of studies are, are sponsored by pharmaceutical uh, companies. And we need to, you know, uh, uh, realign our medical paradigm with the challenge of chronic disease instead of acute problems. And we need to make changes on, on all of these levels. It's a big task. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> not sugarcoating it in any way, but it, we don't really have a choice because if we continue at our current rate, you know, some projections suggest that the U.S. will be financially insolvent or bankrupt by the year 2035. And that, again, that's within the lifetime of many, most people listening to this show. Well, this brings me to another point that negatively impacts our health. It's the same financial incentives for the people that make genetically modified foods, which adversely affects our health. The glyphosate that is in even organic food, it adversely affects our health. EMF, uh, which studies show adversely affects our health. The sugar industry. But it's the same theme uh, all across the board is that there are certain interests that are not pro-health. That's that's certainly true. Um, so I think the change, the way I see this unfolding is probably the biggest changes will first happen on a local level. Um, you'll see, you know, in, individual clinics in, in, adopting and embracing this model and getting great results, and then we'll start to see 
progressive uh, institutions that adopt it. Um, so Iora Health, for example, is a primary care group in the Rocky Mountain area that is using health coaches to reverse type 2 diabetes with great success. Um, Cleveland Clinic has launched their Center for Functional Medicine, headed up by Dr. Mark Hyman, a pioneer in this space. And they uh, have had, you know, they started in a small building and within months moved into the whole second floor of the Glickman Tower, which houses the Cleveland Clinic cardiology and urology units, which are number one in the world. And they have a, a now 17,000 square foot space, 20, 2,600 patient wait list from nine countries around the world, and 16 clinicians and 50 employees in just a really short period of time, which proves the demand for this type of approach. So we're already seeing some really powerful proof, proofs of concept. And I think the more examples of that that we have that we can point to that's, that show, hey, look, not only is this effective, but patients demand it. Uh, they, this is the kind of medicine that they want, and it's also very cost-effective when you compare it to conventional care. I think over time um, that that's going to get people's attention. So, of course, this isn't going to happen overnight, but there are already some really hopeful examples. Yes, there are some hopeful examples, and uh, it's kind of frustrating because one of our exports, as you say, in the U.S. is chronic disease. So yes. we will get back to our ex- prime ex- one of our prime exports there and some of the solutions after the break. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. 
That's drsusan at occupyhealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan with Chris Kresser. He's an expert in functional medicine, and he's pointed out that our country, one of our exports, is chronic disease. That doesn't sound encouraging because we'd like to think we're pretty advanced and working hard and coming up with solutions. So um, can you tell us what functional medicine is? Because this might well be one of the solutions to the problem we're discussing. Sure. So functional medicine is an approach that views the, the body holistically instead of as a collection of separate parts and is focused primarily on addressing the root cause of disease rather than just suppressing symptoms. So again, to use another analogy, um, if you imagine a boat that has some leaks in it, uh, you can, you know, plug the, you, you could uh, bail water from the boat and, and that will slow the sinking of the boat. But the better approach would be to just plug the leaks entirely, you know, fix the, the, the hull of the boat so there's no more leaks and you don't have to keep bailing water. And functional medicine is really all about finding those leaks and, and plugging them up and fixing them rather than just bailing water, which is, the, you know, the equivalent of, of taking drugs to suppress symptoms. So, for example, going back to our example of diabetes, looking at the cause, obviously diet will be a contributor, but perhaps toxins like BPA and EMF and a lot of things, stress can contribute. So what would be some of the underlying approaches to diabetes? Yeah, so diabetes is the the most important thing to understand about diabetes is it's 100% preventable. Um, Certainly, our genes play a role in predisposing certain people to diabetes more than others. But if you look at contemporary hunter-gatherers who are still living a traditional diet and lifestyle, the incidence of diabetes is nearly zero. So that shows that genes alone don't explain type 2 diabetes because if they did, those populations would also have uh, type 2 diabetes at similar rates because we share many of the same genes with uh, contemporary hunter-gatherers. So that's the first thing to understand. Diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is exclusively a behavior and lifestyle-driven condition. So when you understand that, you start to look at what are the factors in our behavior and lifestyle that contribute to type 2 diabetes. Of course, diet is the obvious one, and that's probably the major contributor, in my opinion. But most people are surprised to learn that Scientists uh, at this point would, at least most of the ones that I know who study diabetes, would agree that sleep deprivation um, may be the second most important factor in contributing to uh, type 2 diabetes and metabolic disorders. Uh, back, uh, about a third of Americans now get fewer than six hours of sleep. And that is up from just 2% of Americans getting fewer than six hours of sleep in uh, 1965. So that's a a very profound change in just a a relatively short on the evolutionary timescale period of time. Um, And uh, studies have shown that uh, depriving, you know, uh, inducing sleep deprivation like in a lab um, for eight nights leads to an increase in calorie intake of 566 calories a day. 
Now, that's equivalent to gaining a pound of weight a week or 52 pounds in a year. And, you know, that's an extreme example. Most people wouldn't be deprived of sleep, you know, severely for eight nights in a row, but it does um, suggest that even mild sleep deprivation that happens over a long period of time, which, you know, six hours of sleep would definitely constitute, uh, could lead to a dramatic increase in weight, um, you know, over, over a, a, a several-year period. Uh, beyond uh, sleep, I think changes in physical activity are a big contributor, and not, you know, lack of exercise is certainly one, and it's one that we're very familiar with, but I would argue that um, a decline in what is referred to as non-exercise physical activity, or NEPA, is possibly even a bigger issue, and what I mean by that is any kind of physical activity that's outside of distinct periods of exercise. So when you look at contemporary hunter-gatherers, they walk an average of 10,000 steps a day, um, and that's punctuated. That's about five miles, and that's punctuated by briefer periods, brief periods of more intense physical activity, like running or sprinting or lifting or carrying things. They don't sit for long periods. Um, that's just not something that that they do, and that so they're always kind of moving, and um, that con- you know continual movement leads to much higher calorie expenditure and much lower chances of gaining any weight. Whereas the average American today uh, sits for 60% of their day, and which is an average of about six hours, and that's just an average. So that means many Americans are sitting much longer than that. Uh, If you consider like a sedentary office worker who drives for 30 minutes or 45 minutes to their job, sits, you know, in a chair for the entire day and then drives, you know, another 30 or 45 minutes home, sits down for dinner and then sits on the couch to watch, um, you know, Netflix for a couple of hours at night that person could easily be, be sitting for 10 hours in the day. And, and that's not unusual at this point. So I think that's a big contributor. And then I, I do agree that environmental toxins um, uh, probably are playing a bigger role than, than, than many people realize. But uh, I would say uh, diet, sleep, and changes in physical activity patterns are the three biggest contributors. One of the, this brings me to one of the points you make in your book, that our modern diet and lifestyle are out of alignment with our genes and biology. Could you right. tell us a little more about that and how it impacts us? Yeah, this is, this is a fundamental concept in evolutionary biology, and it, it applies to all organisms in nature, all the way from the simplest, you know, single-celled organisms all the way up the food chain to human beings. And what's, what's always been intriguing to me is that scientists, have long recognized this for every other organism on the planet except for, except for humans. Um, so, for example, let's consider like a, a bacterium that lives in deep, deep in the ocean, so deep where there's no light, and it survives um, next to hydrothermal vents. That bacteria can, can metabolize certain um, chemicals that are, you know, present in, in, next to those vents that would be toxic to any other type of organism on Earth, and they're the, one of the few known organisms that can survive in the absence of photosynthesis. 
Um, so, so clearly that bacteria has been shaped strongly by its environment and its needs in terms of energy uh, are, are completely determined by the environment in which it evolved. And if, uh, it's well understood by any scientist that if you took one of those hydrothermal bacterium, bacteria and you dropped it into a shallow ocean where it was exposed to light and it was away from a hydrothermal vent, it would die. Um, that, you know, that should be obvious. Then we have another example would be cats, you know, your, your typical house cat. Um, the cats, all cats, are carnivores. So in nature, cats only eat meat. They only eat animal products. They don't eat grains. They don't eat even vegetable matter other than perhaps some that they might encounter in the gut of an animal, you know, that, that they would eat. And... Um, you know, for many, many years and still to this day, cat, a lot of commercial cat foods have grains and, and, and other um, uh, stuff that cats would never eat in the wild. Um, but in the last several years, there's been a growing recognition of the importance of a species-appropriate diet amongst veterinarians. Um, and if you go into a pet food store today, you'll often see that the premium brands of cat food, say meat only or, you know, raw, even raw meat uh, only uh, because the vet, vets and even pet owners have recognized that we need to, to feed our pets a diet that's appropriate for, for them as a species. So, and this has happened in zoos, um, you know, back in the, uh, 70s and 80s, and there was a, a recognition that a lot of animals living in captivity were living shorter lifespans than they should have, and they put their heads together and said, oh, uh, maybe we need to feed them the way that they actually eat in the wild. And when they started doing that, they saw a, an increase in lifespan. So we've kind of figured this out with every other, um, again, organism on the planet except for human beings. But the truth is we are subject to the same evolutionary constraints as all of these other organisms. And it's just as important for us to eat a, a diet and follow a lifestyle that is, that, that is in alignment with our, you know, the environment that we evolved in as it is for any of these other organisms. I think as a part of that lifestyle, I think you made some reference to like computer screens late at night that's throwing off the rhythms that would be more natural for the body. That's a really good example um, because it illustrates a lot of different parts of this argument. Um, You know, for all of human evolutionary history, and in fact, all history on this planet, every organism from, you know, again, the most simple single-celled organism all the way up to us has evolved in this natural 24-hour light-dark cycle. Um, And it turns out that that cycle profoundly impacts our circadian clock, and our circadian clock influences um, virtually every different, every single cell in in the body, Um, you know, and everything from our hormone levels to our immune function to cell regulation to our brainwave patterns to our metabolism. And, and in fact, recent studies suggest that our circadian cycle controls between 10 to 15% of, of our gene expression. So um, 
art, the invention of artificial light was fantastic from a cultural perspective. It allowed us to, you know, work in the evening or enjoy entertainment and do things that we couldn't do before. But it, it has had an unpredicted cost in terms of our health because when we're exposed to light at night, that suppresses the production of a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin is responsible for sleep onset, you know, falling asleep and sleep maintenance, staying asleep. And, um, and so what happens is if we are stay up at night, for example, looking at a, at a phone or a, an iPad that, that emits this blue light, it's very much like sunlight. And it tricks our body into believing that it's daytime when it's really nighttime. And that throws off our whole circadian clock. And as I mentioned, that leads to a whole cascade of adverse health consequences that we really weren't prepared for. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a kind of um, unplanned side effect of all of these devices that have become ubiquitous in the modern world. So that doesn't mean that you need to, you know, become a Luddite and throw away all of these devices and live out in your backyard and sleep in a loincloth. But it, there are steps that we can take to mitigate their impact, such as, um, you know, not using them right before bed or, late, you know, late at night. We can wear, there's, there are these uh, amber-tinted glasses that you can buy that, that filter out the spectrum of blue light that's emitted from these devices that suppresses melatonin. And even operating systems, I mean, this, this, this is so well established in the research that now Apple computer and I think even the PC operating systems in both Android and iOS now have a feature built into the operating system that changes the quality of the light that is emitted from the screens once the sun goes down and it shifts to a warmer tint with less blue light in an effort you know, to prevent this phenomenon that we're talking about. That is good to know. I'm glad Apple's got on, and the computer industry's gotten on board with that. But what is the ancestral diet, and why is that important? I mean, you've mentioned for other animals, but what's the ancestral diet for us? Right. So if you look at, you know, contemporary hunter-gatherers, and, uh, um, which anthropologists study, and also archaeological studies of our um, hunter-gatherer ancestors, we know that they ate primarily meat and fish, wild fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and some starchy plants and tubers. And this is true everywhere in the world. There were variations amongst hunter-gatherers in terms of exactly what macronutrient ratios they ate. For example, some groups of people ate much higher fat and much lower carbohydrate, like the traditional Inuit in the Arctic, largely because plant foods weren't available much of the year due to the extreme climate there. Um, what, whereas, like in the South Pacific, you have the Kitavans and the Tukasenta who ate uh, a very high percentage of their calories from fruit and, and, and starches like sweet potatoes. But what they all shared in common, all of these ancestral groups, is what they weren't eating. They weren't eating big gulps, drinking big gulps, and eating Twinkies and cheese doodles and um, all of the modern processed refined foods that that comprise most of our calorie intake today. So, for example, the, the top six foods in the American diet um, by calorie level now are uh, grain-based desserts like cookies and, and cakes, bread, uh, alcohol, sugar-sweetened beverages like sodas, pizza, 
and chicken dishes, primarily fried chicken like chicken nuggets or KFC. Um, Those are the top six foods that we eat today. So that's a profound mismatch between our ancestral diet and the the, the foods that our bodies are pre-programmed to um, to need and the foods that we're eating today. So our, our ancestral diet was nutrient-dense, it was anti-inflammatory, an anti-inflammatory, and it was naturally low in calories, whereas our diet today is just the opposite. It's naturally high in calories, it's nutrient-poor, and it's pro-inflammatory. Yeah, and he's also set off, I mean, disturbed the health of the gut, which is one of the primary things that functional medicine practitioners look at, which can set off a whole chain of autoimmune dysfunction and diseases and leading to these chronic diseases. That's true. Yeah, I mean, again, it's traditional um, medicine seemed to know this. Even, Even in Western traditional medicine, Hippocrates, who is you know often referred to as the father of of western medicine um said uh more than 2000 years ago that all disease begins in the gut this is a a quote that was attributed to him so he knew this you know 2 millennia ago and we're only now rediscovering this in our modern medical model but uh i'm sure most of your listeners have seen Stories, even in popular media like the, you know the New York Times or um, you know uh, uh, magazines um, that that link the our gut microbiome and the health of our gut microbiome to a wide range of conditions from autoimmune disease to Parkinson's to Alzheimer's to cancer and even heart disease. So. Um, there really isn't a system of the body and a chronic disease that we know of that isn't impacted by our gut health. And, and what you said, Susan, is really true. One of the biggest differences between our ancestral diet and our modern processed and refined diet is the impact that uh, it has on our gut flora. When we eat a lot of processed and refined foods, they feed potentially pathogenic microbes in our gut, and those, those microbes pro- proliferate, and they secrete toxins that then can cause you know, what scientists call intestinal permeability, but what's popularly referred to as, as leaky gut. And what happens there is the, the toxins uh, and also large protein molecules escape the gut and get into the bloodstream, and then that causes triggers an immune response. And that immune response can take many different forms. It can manifest as an auto, autoimmune condition. Um, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who, who is a, a, a pioneer in this space, has, ar- has argued that in many autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, uh, intestinal permeability is a precondition to developing it. You, you, and his, his argument is you literally cannot develop an autoimmune disease without intestinal permeability preexisting. Um, but it can also manifest in other ways. It can manifest as skin uh, rashes, acne, acne rosacea, eczema, psoriasis. You know, most, most patients who have these conditions would never think of visiting a gastroenterologist or investigating their gut health. But when you look at the scientific literature, there's a shockingly high co- connection between problems in the gut and skin problems. And in my practice, when I treat patients, if somebody comes in and has a skin problem, 
one of the first things I'm going to do is to test them for a variety of different gut issues. And when we focus on those gut issues, uh, we almost always see improvement in, in the skin health. Likewise, the gut is inexorably intertwined with the brain because uh, many people refer to the, many scientists have come to understand that the gut is really the second brain. Um, it's a, it has a whole distinct nervous system in its own right, and there's even a, a current a theory on depression called the immune cytokine uh, theory of depression, which holds that inflammation that starts in the gut then um, the cytokines produced there in the gut travel up and cross the blood-brain barrier and they suppress the activity of the frontal cortex, which causes the telltale signs and symptoms of depression. So there's a, you know, this is a prominent theory now of, of depression, um, which essentially suggests that, that uh, problems in the gut are actually to, uh, to blame for inflammation, and which in turn causes the depression. So this... There's a saying in functional medicine, fire in the gut, fire in the brain. And so, you know, we're now seeing research that links not gut with not only with depression and anxiety, but also with um, uh, conditions like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's. So it's a really different way of looking at it. You say like every 66 seconds somebody comes down with Alzheimer's disease and that one half of us in the U.S. have a chronic disease and a quarter of us have more than one. So, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like we're meeting what needs to be done. So you, you propose, like, the use of uh, extra uh, health care fields, such as health coaches. So mm-hmm. tell us uh, how your model works and the role of health coaches. Yeah, so if we accept, you know, the, the premises uh, that we've laid out already, which is chronic disease is the biggest challenge we face. Conventional medicine has, has failed to address it adequately and cannot in its current configuration. And then if we also accept the premise that the primary drivers of, of chronic disease are diet, lifestyle, and behavior change, then we naturally come to the conclusion that we need to start working intensively with patients on diet, lifestyle, and behavior change. We've also discussed or or at least hinted at the fact that information and education alone is not enough to promote behavior change. Uh, I mean, if it was, we wouldn't have doctors who smoke cigarettes, right? (laughs) Everyone, you know, most people know what they should be doing or at least with some you know, they, they know often when they're making the wrong choices uh, that don't contribute to health, but they go on making those choices anyways. And that's not because people are lazy or bad or there's something wrong with them. Uh, there are a few reasons for that. Number one, most people don't actually know how to change. Um, we're not taught how su- principles of successful behavior change in school at any level and healthcare practitioners often are not taught how to facilitate behavior change in their patients. And we have many hardwired biological mechanisms that work against us when it comes to behavior change. So let's just use food, for example. Um, we're programmed, pre-programmed to seek out highly, uh, you know, foods that are, that are high in calories because when we evolved in an environment of food scarcity, not food abundance. So this genetic programming to seek out high-calorie rewarding foods would have helped us survive in a natural environment during periods of food scarcity. 
But what happens when we live in an environment where instead of food scarcity, there's food overwhelm, you know, where you have a 7-Eleven on every corner and a Costco in every neighborhood and there's no shortage of food. That, that genetic programming that causes us to seek out calorie-dense foods becomes a liability rather than an asset. And so um, behavior, you know, asking someone to just change their diet and, and choose foods that are less calorie-dense uh, you're going against that hardwired genetic programming. Uh, so it's not just a question of information. We have to learn or and teach um, patients successful principles of behavior change. We also uh, have to look at the food environment. And, you know, uh, if you are trying to lose weight, for example, and you have um, plates and dinnerware that are really large, studies have shown that just switching to smaller plates and smaller dinnerware can, can make a huge difference in terms of the okay. number of calories that are consumed. Okay, so, I hate to interrupt at this point, but I just want to emphasize that health coaches can play an extremely important role in helping uh, encourage patients, uh, educate them, support them, because this is a very difficult thing to do on our own, or we would have done it. But anyway, right. in our two minutes left, would you like to summarize your main points, tell people how to get a hold of you, etc.? Sure. So, um, you know, chronic disease is the biggest challenge we face. We desperately need a new system to, uh, to address it. Uh, otherwise, it's not only our own health that's at risk as individuals, it's the health of our, our society as a whole and even the very existence of our country financially. So in my book, I propose a plan to address that, and you can learn more about it at unconventionalmedicinebook.com. And my uh, primary other websites are chriscresser.com and then cresserinstitute.com for practitioner training. This is extremely interesting and has provided many insights as to where we are, why we're here, and approaches to individually as maybe perhaps collectively find our way back to health. Any further points you'd like to make? I don't think so, Susan. It's been a pleasure to be on the show and talk about this with you. And, and, and I, I just, I'm excited about the, the potential for change here. It's, we've, we've got a ways to go, but there's some really positive signs already. And with that, I would like to uh, tell the audience, I mean, being positive is very important. Being thankful for what we have is important. But doing our own research, check Chris's blog, uh, check his book, uh, and um, learn about these things so you can help yourselves and help other people. And above all, be well. We got the power to change the world. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We got the power.